We have a few scripture readings today from the Gospel of Luke as well as uh, the prophet Isaiah. Um, the first is in, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12 and verses 36 through 49, which uh, there's some Bibles on the, uh, the racks in front of you. Feel free to join us on page 1047. Uh, please stand for the reading of, of God's word. Luke chapter 24. Uh, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. They remember, then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told them told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen uh, lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And from the the, the book of Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, this is page 731 in in your Bibles. This might have been one of the things that Jesus read to them. Who knows? (laughs) Uh, But uh, the prophet Isaiah said this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered among with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for, their transgress, for the transgressors. This is God's word. Amen Amen indeed. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you 
for what we have sung, for what we've heard so far this morning. We pray as we look into your word now that your spirit would meet us, that you would open our eyes, our hearts, our minds to see you afresh, that we would make much of you, that we would see Jesus clearly, that we would delight in him and see the treasure that he is and the life that he offers. So bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want to ask the question, I want us to ask the question, how do we respond to Easter? What do we make of this holiday? What's it all about? From chocolate bunnies to family brunches, there's a lot of different things that come to our minds when we think of the Easter holiday. I think that this uh, Norman Rockwell painting, we have it up here? Yeah. I think this captures pretty well how our culture sees the Easter holiday. You know, it's a good religious thing to do. Representing a bygone era, complete with the trappings of Bibles and bonnets, that you could feel good about yourself for doing, walk with your chin up high. Although, if you notice, the youngest are a little suspicious about the thing. And perhaps the shrewdest make it their aim to avoid it altogether. What is Easter about? Is there something beyond the bonnets and the bows and the flowers and so on? Does this holiday point to something more than a cultural icon of yesteryear? What do we make of the fanfare and the hype? Especially when you stop and consider the message of Easter. That a dead man has risen out of the grave and is now living again. Really? I mean, perhaps you're, you're sitting there sheepishly wondering, should I tell them dead people don't rise again? I mean, it's the stuff of zombie movies and stuff. You know, modern science is quite proven that fact. Just so you know, we didn't need modern science to figure out dead people don't rise. That's just what happens. Well, this Easter season, we've been considering the message and hope of Jesus' death and resurrection through the lens of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It's easy to forget as we're trying to make sense of this holiday. And and, and is it true? Did Jesus really rise? And if so, what difference does it make? It's easy to forget that the story of Jesus doesn't show up on the doorstep of history out of the blue. The ancient people of Israel had long been expecting a king who would come and rescue them from their problems. So problems like political oppression. And from bigger problems like what's called sin, rebellion against God, and the consequences of that rebellion, death. So the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is part of a much bigger story of the people of Israel, of of God's promise to bless that ancient people, and then through them to bless every people group, every nation of the world. So the story of Easter is the story of all creation. It's the story of all history. It's the story of God himself. In case you haven't figured it out, we need the story. 
Because this world does not work the way that it's supposed to. You know, our passage Isaiah, the chapter we're looking at this morning, it uses a lot of different words and ideas to describe the problems of this world. Ideas and words like rejection, sorrow, grief, violence, affliction, oppression, transgression, which is a fancy word for rebellion against God, iniquity, sin, straying from God, murder, the grave, guilt, deceit, anguish, death. That's one chapter. It's a lot of problems. You don't have to be a Christian to see that. You know, just look at the world. Look at our relationships. We have relationships that do not last like they should. They break down. We have bodies that don't always work the way that they're supposed to. Our stuff, our possessions, sooner or later, it's all fleeting. If I had to summarize Isaiah's list in three words, it would be sorrow, sin, and death. That's what's wrong with this world. God's vision when he created this world was something quite different. He, his vision for this world was joy and blessing. So that's what he wanted us to experience. That's what he wanted humans to experience. Instead, because of sin, creation is broken and we're surrounded with sorrow and pain. God's vision for relating with humans was that we would serve him in righteousness as his children, as his own beloved children, part of his family. Instead, all humanity has rebelled against God and turned our backs on him. That's what the Bible means by the word sin. It's to disobey God. It's to rebel. You know, essentially, we have committed high treason against God, the King of Heaven. Throwing off His rule and replacing it with something else. Usually, me. Uh, and whether it's something as seemingly innocent as an angry outburst in traffic, guilty, uh, or something as heinous as genocide. Every person on this earth who's ever lived has fallen short of God's standard, of God's rule. Except for one. And as a result, instead of enjoying life and blessing in God's presence forever, we face death. Physical death here on earth and eternal death in hell. And no amount of religious ritual or hard work or, or good deeds to make it up to God, no amount of that stuff can ever pay the debt we owe. Sorrow, sin, and death. That is life in this world. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So what does that have to do with Easter? What does that have to do with Easter? Easter is God's statement that not all is right in this world. It's God saying, I recognize the frustration, the pain, the sorrow that you're facing. And it's not right. And 
It's God's statement that he's not satisfied to leave things the way that they are. In sorrow, in sin, in death with his people so far from him. And so Easter is God's statement that he is making all things new. All things new. A new relationship with him. A new family of his people. A new creation where we will enjoy his presence for all eternity. New joy, new righteousness, new and eternal life. If you think of the promise that we saw last week, if you were here with us in Isaiah 52, God's promise to return to his rebellious people and buy them back, to rescue them and redeem them. Listen to God's promise to restore everything from the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw, excuse me, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now listen to this, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Everything that we feel in our bones that's wrong with this world, gone. God is making all things new. And that started with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So, how do we get from here to there? What is it that takes us from the brokenness of this fallen world that we live in to the newness of life and hope in God's presence in a new creation, especially when we are unworthy of such forgiveness? Because we ourselves are rebels. How do joy, righteousness, and life triumph over sorrow, sin, and death? That's the question we have to ask. And the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, points us to a person. He doesn't point us and say, well, there's something you need to do. He says there's someone you need to know. He points us to a person. A servant of God who will not only bring back Israel, but will be a light to the nations. Every people group on this earth. And Isaiah 53 tells us that this person will do that by laying down his righteous life and suffering in place of God's rebellious people. Only to take it back up again in victory over the grave. That's what Isaiah says. In other words, God is going to rescue his people through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Look with me at Isaiah 53. If you have a Bible in front of you, it will also be on the screen. If you're using the one in the rack in front of you, that's on page 731. 
Now, the book of Isaiah, by conservative estimates, was written about 700 years before Jesus. But even by the most critical estimates, there's a minimum of 500 years between when what we're going to read was written and when Jesus actually stepped onto the scene of human history. And yet, it gives us one of the clearest portraits of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That's amazing. This past Thursday, we spent time in this chapter thinking about Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross. I want us to, to think about Israel's problems, sorrow, sin, death, our problems, and then think about the cross of Christ. So, where Jesus was executed as a criminal, though he'd broken no law, though he had committed no sin against his Father in heaven, though his trial was a miscarriage of justice, it was full of illegalities. So think of our problem and think of the cross and now listen to these words about God's righteous servant. Isaiah 53. Surely he, the servant, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. That is a shocking portrait on so many levels. It's shocking how brutal and violent Jesus' death was. All that he had to endure. It's shocking that victory came not through Jesus taking up the sword against his enemies, but instead laying his life down for them. But as we look at the conclusion of this chapter this morning, verses 10 through 12, we see three particular surprises about how God is buying back his people and rescuing them for himself. First, as brutal and unsettling as the servant's suffering is, what we just read. What's even more shocking is that this whole thing was God's idea, was God's plan. Look again at verse 10, the first verse of our passage. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. All of this pain, all of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf was God's idea. Now, sometimes we think that when sin entered the world or that when 
our lives suddenly fall apart. That God has somehow slipped off his throne for a moment. And now, and so the, the cross is God's backup plan to fix things as he clamors to put it all back together. And Jesus was the unlucky victim. Like the, the private standing closest to the commanding officer when they discover the enemy's bunker. Private, you go in there first. Jesus was just the unlucky victim. No, not at all. God's plan for history always had the cross in view. It was always moving that direction, even before time began. 1 Peter 1 describes how we have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for your sake. And this was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's plan together. Jesus suffered willingly and purposefully. He was not some unsuspecting victim. When he came to earth, he knew he had a mission to do. And he knew what it was going to cost him. And he willingly did it. He willingly gave up his life. That's the extent of his love for you. As he says in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to lay his life down to buy God's people back. So, it's surprising to see that the suffering of Jesus was the plan of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But just as surprising is the result of Jesus' suffering. That rebels can be declared righteous. That's surprising as well. That rebels can be declared righteous. That sinners can be saved. You think about it. Forgiveness is really hard. When you have been wronged. When you have been deeply betrayed. And if that's ever happened where you've been betrayed by someone close to you, someone that you loved, that you trusted, and they've taken advantage of you and they've hurt you, it's really hard to forgive. Now, take that pain and that anger, multiply it by infinity, and you begin to get a sense of the anger that God has, a holy God against a sinful creation whom he made to be his children and yet they turned their back on him we've sinned against a holy god who is not able to allow sin into his presence if it's hard to forgive an unholy spouse you know how how hard is it for a holy god to forgive us how is that possible well that's what christ's suffering was all about Look at the middle of verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus was God's righteous servant. He lived a life of obedience before God that we were supposed to but couldn't. He was God's perfect son. Moreover, he bore our iniquities. He 
died the death that we deserve to die for our sin in our place to bring us back to God. So he lived life for us. He died death for us. Sin is offensive against God. It is treason against his heavenly crown. And so it has to be dealt with or he's not a just God. So in his mercy, Jesus took that anger against our sin on himself, on the cross, to take it away from us. That's why verse 10 describes his death as a guilt offering. Some translations say an offering for sin, but the word here refers to the guilt offerings of Leviticus 5. An offering designed to atone for or to cancel the guilt of someone who has broken God's law. That's what kind of offering Jesus' death was. Because the reality is those older blood sacrifices of, of Israel's law, all of those were pointing forward to the cross. All of those were pointing to Jesus. Just as the end of verse 12 says, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, for the rebels. That is, through his death, Jesus brought back rebels into relationship with God. By his wounds, we, you and me, are healed. This is part of what Jesus was explaining to his disciples after the resurrection when he uh, sat down with them. That through the cross of Christ, God is putting this broken world and our broken lives back together. There is new life, new joy, new hope in Jesus. But that's not all that the Old Testament prophets pointed toward. Back at Luke 24... This is what is written. The Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That was written as well. Which brings us to perhaps the most, the greatest surprise in Isaiah 53 and in the story of God and in the course of human history. That death does not win. That death doesn't win. Life wins through Jesus. This servant who was cut off from the land of the living, whose grave was made with the wicked, who pours out his soul, his very life unto death. Look at how this servant ultimately ends up in our chapter. Verse 10 again. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That's not exactly how you describe the state of a failed campaign at being king where you got yourself killed and then buried, is it? Seeing your offspring, God's will prevailing in your hand, living out long days. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see, or perhaps see light, and be satisfied. Again, that's that's not what usually happens when you lose and die. Something else is going on here. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him 
a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's victory language. You know, the, the portion and the spoil, that refers to the reward of winning a war. That's what you take home from the battle because you won. That's not what you talk about when you're dead and in the grave. You don't get a reward for that. What's going on here? This servant who suffered and died is ultimately the victor, the conqueror. Precisely because, rest of, the rest of verse 12 here, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. What do we make of all this? What do we make of this? Now, perhaps Isaiah is just using a metaphor. You know, using flowery language. Uh, perhaps he's referring to some spiritual reality. After all, dead people don't come alive again. But don't forget that elsewhere in Isaiah, God's people are already looking forward to the day when God will, quote, swallow up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. They're already looking forward to the day when death is defeated and to the day when God will, quote, create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah 65. Because if the dead are not raised bodily, then death still wins and we are still in our sin. So Israel had already been looking forward to God redeeming this broken world and making it new. And the chief expression of that hope was resurrection. Resurrection. So what Isaiah 53 is implying is that God is going to vindicate his servant who gave his life, though innocent. He's going to clear his name and reward him for his righteousness precisely by raising him from the dead. But is it true? Did it really happen? The historical plausibility of the resurrection does not rest on scientific possibility, but on divine possibility and human testimony. In other words, the question we need to ask when considering whether or not the resurrection is true is not, is it scientifically possible? Of course not. It's not scientifically possible. That's not the right question. If God is God, could God do it? That's the first question. Not is it possible for us or for science. Is it possible for God? If he's really the God of the universe who created everything here, could he raise the dead? Well, if he created something, I think he can recreate it, can't he? So the next question is, did he? Did he? How reliable is history's testimony? Well, we can't go into all of the details here, but by applying... Standard secular measures of historical reconstruction, what historians at universities do every day, there's every reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
For instance, if you are going to make up a story in the ancient world about your failed king rising from the dead, you wouldn't identify women as your star witnesses. Sad but true, women's testimony did not hold much water back then. And yet all four Gospels, that's precisely who they say was first on the scene. That was a bad move politically, to be honest about that one, if they're trying to convince people. Unless it really happened that way. Moreover, if the disciples made this up, they would know what they were teaching was a lie. And yet, all but one of them died a martyr's death for their testimony. Who would do that? The prophets point forward to the resurrection. The Gospels bear witness that it happened. Jesus rose bodily. His body was buried in a grave, dead as dead gets. And he rose three days later. Same body, but now transformed. So the marks of the nails were still in his hands. That's how some of the disciples identified him in the room. But it's a renewed body, a resurrection body. It's no longer subject to the decay of this world. Instead, it is fit for eternal existence in God's new earth. And it's in this same body that Jesus sits right now in heaven at the right hand of his Father waiting to return. The resurrection is God's statement that he is making all things new. The longing in every heart to be rescued from our sorrow, to be forgiven our sin, to be freed from death's curse. Jesus satisfies that longing for all who believe in him. In part now, as the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead gives life to spiritually dead rebels like you and me and and enables us to live and walk with him, just as Doug bore testimony to that earlier in his own life. So in part now, we come to know the life and the joy of a right relationship with God. And Jesus will satisfy those longings in full when he returns to complete God's new creation. And we will, in fact, share in his resurrection with new bodies like his, fit for eternal life in the heavenly new earth. That's the hope, that death does not win. The body doesn't stay in the grave. Life wins through Jesus. So how do we respond to Easter? It's not about a religious ritual. We're trying to make it up to God for all of our failures. It's about first being honest with our sin and our failures, our weakness, our frustrations, the sins that have been committed against us and how deeply wounded we've been. It's being honest about the brokenness of our lives. And second, it's about looking in faith to Jesus who loved us by taking our sorrow, our sin, and our death on himself to pay the debt we owed to God, to forgive us our sins, to give us new life and peace and joy in knowing God forever. Serving him as his children, singing 
praises to Him, making much of His name. Which is what the word hallelujah means, as we're going to sing in a little bit. Praise the Lord. If you do not know this joy or this life, I pray that God would open your heart to it today. And I would absolutely love to visit with you afterward. If you do, I pray that it would be fresh and ever more beautiful to you as you see Jesus more clearly and treasure Him and find your satisfaction in Him who has loved a rebel like you. That's amazing. May we know the joy and hope of the resurrection this Easter. And may Jesus receive the praise due His name. Amen.